But turn, if you would, to chapter 30. We'll be looking at a story now that is David as he returns with his men from Aphek in the coming battle between the Philistines and the Israelites. If you would now please pay attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely without error. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. 1 Samuel chapter 30. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negeb and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David. And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So David set out, and the six hundred men who were with him, and they came to the brook Basor, where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued, he and four hundred men, two hundred stayed behind, who were too exhausted to cross the brook Basor. They found an Egyptian in the open country, and brought him to David. And they gave him bread, and he ate. They gave him water to drink, And they gave him a piece of cake, of figs, and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived. For he had not eaten bread nor drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, To whom do you belong, and where are you from? He said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite. And my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We had made a raid against the Negeb of the Cherethites and against that which belongs to Judah, and against the Negeb of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, Will you take me down to this band? And he said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this band. And when he had taken him down, behold, They were spread abroad over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. 
David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, This is David's spoil. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who had been left at the brook Basor. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. But David said, You shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. When David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, Here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. It was for those in Bethel, in Ramoth of the Negeb, in Jatir, in Aroer, in Sifmoth, in Eshtemoah, in Rakal, in the cities of the Jeremelites, in the cities of the Kenites, in Hormah, in Borashan, in Athak, in Hebron, for all the places where David and his men had roamed. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning to hear from you in your word. Lord, we ask that in your word you would point us to the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would see the one whom we can trust in, the one who died on our behalf. We pray, O Lord, that in your word would be the power, by the power of your Holy Spirit, to change us. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Life is hard, isn't it? What do we do when we are overwhelmed? Where do we find strength to go on? This morning, 1 Samuel chapter 30 shows us where we find the strength to go on. We find strength in the Lord. This is a story of David who is in extreme straits. And I'd like us this morning to see three things from this chapter. The first is we see when life is overwhelming. When life is just overwhelming to David, and quite often to us. Second, we see David finding strength in the Lord. Finding his strength in the Lord. And then thirdly, we see David seeing the blessing of God. When life is overwhelming, strength in the Lord, and the blessing of God. Let's begin then by looking at how David is overwhelmed here in this chapter. Let's remember the context that leads us up to chapter 30. There is an old saying that goes something like this. 
It's bad enough to be in the frying pan, but worse to go from the frying pan to the fire. And that's what David is experiencing in chapter 30. David had been with his 600 men for some time, and they've been through many narrow escapes. There have been many occasions where David chose not to end the conflict with Saul. But his latest choice had been the worst yet. He had gone over to the land of the Philistines, and that led to David then being taken to the mustering of the Philistine army in Aphek, you may recall from two weeks ago in chapter 29. David's deception and his faltering faith had finally caught up to him. It had surely seemed that the end was about to occur at Aphek. They were going to be forced to fight Israel, and this would have been devastating to David's hope to rule over Israel, but it also would have affected all of his men. They would have been branded as traitors. They would have been cut off from Israel, they and their families. But in spite of it all, God had delivered them. And he had used the Philistines, no less, to deliver them from this grim fate. And now David and his men have to make a three-day journey back to Ziklag from Aphek. It was about 60 miles, so there was some distance. But could you imagine, even with that long march ahead of them, how light their hearts must have been? Could you imagine them speaking to each other on the road back to Ziklag? Nobody's going to believe us when we get home. Can you believe how miraculous this deliverance was? I know. I was sure we were going to be destroyed. I was sure we were going to get found out in the midst of that Philistine army. And they were going to kill us all. But we survived. As they're going, they would be laughing. They would be testifying to one another. They would be anticipating a great reunion with their wives and children to share the stories of God's goodness and mercy. We know from the text, from verses 1 and 2, that something else is waiting for them. As they come within sight of Ziklag, they begin to see a sight of horror. Plumes of smoke rise to the sky. And they would know exactly what that meant. After all, they would fear the worst because they had done these same things to other cities and towns. You may recall from chapter 27, they had gone out on raids. They had destroyed towns and villages, killing everyone to keep David's secret. And when they arrive, their fears are confirmed. The city has been destroyed. Their families are gone. Now, this is horrible. But can you imagine how much worse it must have been by all the up and the downs of their emotions over this past period of time? First, they thought they were doomed at the beginning of chapter 29. And then they knew they were rescued at the end of chapter 29. And now again, all is doom and gloom. Have you ever had disturbing news strike you when you least expected it? Perhaps you went to the doctor expecting a glowing health report because you had been eating right and working out. And you go only to find out that you have a disease or you have cancer 
or you need surgery. It's devastating. Perhaps your child comes home from college and you're expecting great encouragement because all throughout the semester they've been telling you how great school's been going and then you see their grades and you see, no, it isn't so good. You see, what happens is difficulties that come as a surprise are even harder to deal with because of the up and down of the emotion. David's gone out of the frying pan of the Philistines, now into the fire of Ziklag. Now I want you to put yourself in David's place for a few moments. He's been on an emotional roller coaster. His wives have been taken. They've lost everything. And worse yet, he would blame himself. After all, he was the one who decided to come to Ziklag. His actions had taken the whole troop away from Ziklag. And it was his deception raiding the Amalekites that had likely caused the raid to come from the Amalekites. If you can bear with another cliche, this is like the last straw after the last straw. When that last straw comes that breaks your back, and then somebody dumps something else on top of you. We would think it wouldn't be like this for God's chosen king. He shouldn't suffer like this. And so as we look at David, David's life is a cure to the false faith that is pervaded in America today. That if you believe in Jesus, your life should be perfect. You should have all the money you need and perfect health. God's chosen king shows us otherwise in his suffering. It's... It's like if you imagine that things can't possibly get worse. And then they do. That happens to David here. David is greatly distressed, the text tells us. Now, when we hear that, we think about an emotional estate of distress. But it actually means more than that. It means that he is in dire straits. Or we might even translate that Hebrew phrase in a very tight place. It's the same language that Saul uses when he's about to be pinned down by the Philistines. He says, I am in great distress. I can't get away. David is in a dangerous predicament because his men have turned on him. So not only has he lost everything, not only does he blame himself, but now his men want to stone him because they blame him for the loss. And it's not exactly unreasonable for them to blame him. What can David do now? He may have thought he could take no more. And yet, more comes. This can happen to you and me, can't it? We decide that enough is enough. And then yet, more trouble comes our way. I think of the life of one of my youth childhood heroes, the great quarterback of my Buffalo Bills, Jim Kelly. You may know his story. He is the only quarterback to lead his team to four consecutive Super Bowls and lose them all. But that's not so bad, I suppose. It's just sports. And Jim had always dreamed of having a son. He dreamed of 
going out in the yard and teaching his son how to throw, making a quarterback out of his son. And he had a daughter. And then he was blessed with a second daughter. But he still pined for a son. And then finally, he had a son born to him. But the problem was his son was born with a rare genetic disease. A disease that rarely allows someone to live more than two years. Jim's son, Hunter, lived for eight years before he passed away because of the constant care of Jim's wife, Jill. Jim talked about his son in his Hall of Fame speech. He said, I'm known for my toughness, but the toughest person I've ever met in my life is my son, Hunter. And so you would think after losing Super Bowls and losing the only son that you had that it couldn't get any worse except for when he announced he had oral cancer. And he fought cancer and had treatments that were painful, and he was in the hospital. And his family rallied around him as he professed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He was converted, and his marriage in the midst of disease was saved. He and his wife testified to the goodness of God, and he beat cancer. And that's how the story's supposed to end, isn't it? You believe in God, and you beat cancer, and you go on, except for... It came back a year later. And he fought it again with all of the pain and all of the struggle that was involved with it. Surgeries, chemotherapy, etc. And again, he was pronounced cancer-free. Except for just this month, they announced it had come back for the third time. You see, we don't get to decide when enough is enough. Sometimes the last straw, on top of the last straw comes to us. Dale Ralph Davis puts it so well. Beloved, when Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation, he didn't reduce it to small print or hide it in a footnote. Sometimes, life is overwhelming. So what does David do? What do we do in this kind of a situation? He's down in the pit And he can't see a way out. What David does, distinct from all of his men, is he finds his strength in the Lord, his God. What I want you to see is the turning point for David is not something he does. The turning point for David is in where he turns. He turns to God. That's what we see at the end of verse 6. Now what does this mean When the text tells us that David strengthened himself in the Lord, his God. I want you to look closely at the language. But what it doesn't mean is it doesn't mean that there's some kind of magic fix that is coming. As if God is our servant who is required to do exactly what we want. And that's how we get strengthened. That we need to buck ourselves up and God helps us by fixing all of our problems immediately. You see, people often run to religion. When things are bad and beyond them. But then as soon as things get better, they so often run away again. Because they haven't been changed by the Lord. Because they haven't come face to face with Jesus Christ. They simply want a magic fix. I think of the aftermath of 9-11. When 9-11 happened... There was hope within much of the American church that this would bring about a revival. 
that Americans had finally come to terms with the fact that we live in a fallen, wicked world, that they had finally come to terms that no one was safe and that we needed the Lord. And there was great hope that revival would break out all over America. And there was lots of talk about God. Lots of talk about the Bible. But within a few months, it started to fade away. Within a few years, people had forgotten all about him. And now we come to a point in America today where the greatest evangelist of the 20th century, Billy Graham, passes away. And NBC's lead story is about how horrible and wicked a man he was because he did not endorse the LGBTQ agenda. In less than 20 years, we've gone from hope for revival to despising the servant of the Lord. You see, no magic fix is what we're looking for. It's also not simply unloading our emotions. Now, you can vent and you can yell, but you're not going to be strengthened. I'm telling you, I'm Italian. Yelling is our natural resource. And I can yell and I can vent. You've probably done it as well. But when you are done yelling and venting, do you feel strengthened? No, if you're like me, you feel exhausted. It tires you out. So that's not what we mean either. Simply shouting out to God how horrible things are. It is recognizing that you have a personal relationship with God. Notice the pronoun in verse 6. David was strengthened in the Lord his God. Not the Lord, the God. Not even the Lord, our God. But the Lord, His God. Now, corporate covenantal faith is important. I am glad that you are all here this morning as we corporately come to worship. But our corporate faith is founded on our personal, individual faith. It is one thing, for example, to say, Jesus is the Son of God. It is quite another thing to say, Jesus is the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, David now has nothing. He can't say my city. He can't say my family. But he can still say my God. David has that personal relationship with the Lord. And it strengthens him. The second way that David can be strengthened is by leaning on the promises of God. That's how we're strengthened in God. And the text gives us a clue about this. Because the other place where this phrase, strengthened in the Lord, is used is in chapter 23. You may remember Jonathan came and strengthened David in the Lord. Do you recall how Jonathan did that? He reminded David of the promises of God. He said to him, My father will not capture you. You will be the king because God has promised this to you. Be strong, David. And so this reminds us of what David is doing to himself here in chapter 30. He's repeating the promises of God to himself. And when we do that, we are strengthened. So when life is overwhelming, what we must do is say, He's promised, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He has promised, no one will snatch you out of my hand. He has promised, I have prepared a place for you. 
You see, these promises are part of our daily life and bread. We repeat the promises to ourselves to give us hope and strength in the Lord. The third way that David is strengthened is by coming into the presence of God. What's the very first thing David does after it says he strengthened himself in the Lord? Do you see it? He calls for Abiathar and the ephod. Now this is critically important. He hasn't called for the ephod Since chapter 23, he hasn't actually mentioned the Lord since chapter 26. And what David is doing is he wants to communicate with God. He wants to know God's will. And so he brings the ephod to find out what he should do. Now, you may be sitting there and say, Pastor, I don't have an ephod in my back pocket. And you remember you told us we don't even know how the ephod worked. So what are we supposed to do here? You're right. You don't have an ephod. I don't either. You don't have a little priest like Abiathar. But what you have is the great high priest that you can go to. You have direct access to the Lord himself. You don't need an ephod to go to God. Jesus has opened up the way through the cross by shedding his blood. He has finished the work so that we can come right to the throne of grace. So that we can come to the Lord and be in his presence and be strengthened. Jesus has won that for us. How much greater a blessing do we have than David did? You see, when we're in struggling times, we don't need information or answers. We think we do. Because we want to act. But what we really need is help to bear up under difficult circumstances. And that's what God brings to us by his presence. We find our strength in our relationship with the Lord. Now David also continues to find strength by trusting the Lord. He does this as he sees the providence of God. So David goes and uses the ephod and he asks the Lord, what should I do? Will I overtake them? Will I rescue? And the answer comes in verse 8. Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and you shall surely rescue. Now what does David do after he receives that word from the Lord? It's pretty simple, but I don't want you to miss it. He obeys God. Do you see that? Now, I want you to stop for a minute and think about this. God tells him to pursue, and he does. I'm not so sure that the average modern American Christian would do this. Because what does David do? Does he know where to go? No. Does he know who he's pursuing? No. What does he do? He just goes out into the wilderness. Why? Because God said, go out. That's it. I think far too often we would be tempted to say, okay, God, but you've got to give us some kind of an idea. Are we like, do they have like a three-day head start or like a two-day head start? And, and, and how many of them are there so we know? And in which direction are they going? Give me some more information. Help me to figure this out. But you see, David doesn't do that. There's a simple biblical principle here. It is 
critical for us not just to know our Bibles, not just to know God's will, but we have to obey it. There is a blessing found in obeying the will of God. Think about David's faith in this obedience. We like to put faith and obedience against each other as if somehow obeying isn't an act of faith. This obedience is all about faith. David doesn't know where he's going. He doesn't know what he will find. He doesn't know what he will do. The only thing he knows is that God has promised him victory and he goes out on that. His obedience is rooted in his faith and trust in the Lord. But there's a small thing that makes a difference here in our story. As they wander off, they just happen to find an Egyptian who just happens to be on the edge of death, but not dead. Who just happens to have come from the band of Amalekites. Who just happens to know where they are at this point. What do you think the odds of that are? I don't even have time for the good among us in math to figure that one out. You see, God is acting in his providence. This this Egyptian is the key to the Lord fulfilling his promise to David. And the Lord is showing David and you and me that his providence is everywhere. Now, it is not announced. It is not highlighted. Do you notice this? That our author doesn't say, and the Lord had arranged so that the Egyptian would be in just the right place. Our author does not say, and thanks to the providential work of the Lord in preserving the Egyptian, David would find the Amalekites. No, he doesn't mention God at all. And that's not because God's providence isn't important. It's because God's providence is so much everywhere that it's taken for granted. It's like this. If our author gave us a comment about God's providence being in charge of what's going on, every other sentence would be a providential sentence. Because God's providence is everywhere in our lives. Even the smallest things make a difference. The text doesn't have to connect the dots for us. We're supposed to do it in our own minds and hearts and theology. We have to see the quiet work of God's providence, not only in David's life, but in our own life. And when we look back and see that, we are strengthened because we know God's in control and that's good enough for us. Brothers and sisters, you will not understand the world. You will not understand your hope unless you begin to see the world through God-colored glasses. That God is everywhere at work. So the next thing that we see is the outworking of all of God's assurances. David begins to see the blessing of God. And he sees it first in the grace that God provides to him. You know the story that we've read? He finds the Amalekites thanks to this providential Egyptian. And they are partying it up. They're sure that no one can come after them. Because after all, the Philistines have all gone off to war with Israel. They're sure no one is around. Quick aside, who sent the Philistines away? Who arranged for the Amalekites to have complete confidence that no one would attack them? 
Who has set up the circumstances that they would completely not be on their guard? But God. And so David attacks and his men strike and and a complete victory is won. Now, I want you to think for a moment. We're not told how big this band of Amalekites is. But there's an interesting way that our author puts it. He says, not a man escaped except for the 400 that got away on camels. Now, I don't know about you, but that means that the size of the party was not 450. What that means is the vast majority of them were destroyed except for 400. Now, David attacks them with how many men? 400. So God has arranged for a complete victory. over an overpowering foe. And he does this by his grace. The text makes clear that God keeps his promise. Look at verse 18. David recovered what? All that the Amalekites had taken. Verse 19. Nothing was missing, whether small or great. What had God promised? That all would be recovered. And what was recovered? Everything. Now we can look at this and say this is yet another miraculous providence. That none of the women, none of the children were killed. That nothing was lost. Now I'm sure the Amalekites weren't taking the best of care of these families. They intended to sell them off into slavery. But God had so put it into their hearts that they would not do what David had done. So that all could be recovered. And David gets even more of the spoil in verse 20. He leads flocks and herds. Now you would think this would be a great thing. Victory for David. Recovery of everything. But it presents itself as a problem yet again. Do you remember the 200 men that got left back at the brook? Well, the 400 say, you shouldn't get anything. You didn't come out to the battle with us. We're the tough guys. We did all the work. You did nothing. Now, how will David handle this? How can David handle this by faith? Now, what do we mean here by faith? What we mean here is that David looks at this situation and recognizes that everything that they have gotten has come from the Lord. He says, we didn't know where to go. God provided the direction. We didn't know how to defeat this army. God provided the victory. God kept our families safe. God gave this spoil to us. It wasn't that the 400 men with David were the best warriors on the face of the earth. No, this is all God. And so what David says to them is, we're not going to do this, brothers. We shall not do this with what the Lord has given to us. He says, you might think it was your work and they didn't work, but it's really all of grace. We need to remember this when we are the recipients of God's blessings. It's like the parable in the New Testament where the man hires workers at varying points of the day. And those who were hired at the beginning of the day 
and agreed to their wage, and it was all of grace. The man didn't have to hire them. He didn't have to pay them that. And they get all upset because those at the end of the day get paid the same. And the man who hired them says, don't I get to do with what I want with my stuff? I give out by my grace. Idolatry begins when we think about our work instead of God's grace. And David will have none of this. And so much so that our author tells us he makes a statute that is true up until the day of the author, that everyone gets a share of the spoil. And this just makes perfect sense, because after all, if David had left men behind in Ziklag to guard the baggage, to not go out into battle, to not risk the war, perhaps Ziklag wouldn't have been burnt to the ground. So this makes practical sense as well. You need men to stay with the baggage. David is backing all of this with a proper theological view. His eye is on God's grace. He knows what's going on here. This is not plunder that we have recovered. It's what the Lord our God has given to us. The final thing we see here this morning is that David sees God's provision as an opportunity. David goes beyond making sure that his men are rewarded. And what he does is he sends part of the spoil, of his spoil, to his friends in all of these towns that are hard to pronounce. Now, I want you to notice something here. You do not see the Ziphites listed here. Do you remember the Ziphites? You know, part of the job description of being a Ziphite is to betray David. They did it not once, not twice, but three times. So you see, David is rewarding those who were in the places where his men had roamed. He's rewarding those who had helped to protect him and his men. Perhaps they had provided for him and his men. And this gives us a picture of David the king. Do you remember Samuel's warning when Israel said they wanted a king? You remember what he said was, if you get a king, he's going to be a taker. He's going to take your crops. He's going to take your young men. He's going to take your horses. He's going to take and take and take and take. Right? And Saul did that, didn't he? Wherever he found a good man, he attached that young man to himself. He took from the people to support himself. But now here we see David, and David is showing us that he is a giver. That as a king, he is a giver. And this is a picture of the true king. We've seen this over and over again, that David shows us a picture, a drawing, as it were, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the giving king. He came not to be served, but to serve. Jesus gives his gifts to his people. Jesus fights our battles for us, not the other way around. He defeats all his and our enemies. Beloved, you can trust the true king. He is the same God who is with us through the worst of times. 
He is the one who is personal in his relationship with us. He is the one who walks with us in his providence. He is the one who gives to us by his grace. Our Lord Jesus Christ is the king of his people because he has purchased them with his own blood. On the cross of Calvary, his death atoned for the sins of his people. If this morning, by faith, you rest in the Lord Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven you. You are no longer in dire straits. You are no longer in great distress. No matter what the world can do to you, it can take your car, it can take your home, it can take your health. But the world can't take your Jesus. Jesus Christ has purchased for himself a people to dwell with him forever. This is the glory of the gospel. Let's pray.